But hey, how, how was your Thanksgiving? Great. Uh, who would say thumbs up on Thanksgiving? Okay. How about right about here for Thanksgiving? I won't go any lower, don't worry. But anybody just have kind of a mediocre Thanksgiving? It's not disrespectful to say, eh, it wasn't the best. Okay, and there's a lot of you that didn't respond. So that means if I went all the way down, there would be some hands that would go up. You know, uh, Thanksgiving and holidays can be a little bit tricky. Uh, first of all, just very sensitively, holidays can be tough for people. You know, as you all know, we just had a very, very painful memorial service that we facilitated here at Grace. And so holidays can be so difficult and so emotional, and, 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 and we need to remember that and be sensitive to that. But, but it's not that way for everybody. There are some people who the holidays are just the best. And I bet there are people here who had a This Is Us holiday experience for Thanksgiving. You guys watching This Is Us? I bet some of you, it was like sitting around with the whole family and the, the white lights or, or maybe an episode from Parenthood when it just couldn't be any better and we're all weird and we're all quirky and we're all filled with issues, but we love each other and we're best friends. And was that anybody's experience? I mean, it's a, it's a huge blessing if you can say that that was your experience, if, if the holidays were just great and family time was just the best. <laughs> Uh, some of us have a little more complicated families, like maybe more of a modern family dynamic. Have you seen the show Modern Family? Some of us can relate better to that than This Is Us. And uh, Do any of you have a, an awkward family member? When you were getting ready for the holidays this past week, did any of you have that family member that you, you had to do the little pep talk on the front end? Do you have the family member where in the car on the way, you're pep talking? Okay, now, if he says this, it's okay, just ignore it. Or, or, or do you ever have the aggressive family member and you just know they're going to bring it up again every time they bring this up and they want to talk about this and it never goes well? Or, or there's just constantly dynamics that can occur in families that just make it awkward. And we want family dynamics to be so special that when they're not, it just, it's just a bummer. Um, I felt like we should just pause a little bit today, and, and I'm going to do a quick timeout from the series that we've been doing on living in exile. And I want to talk a little bit about weird family dynamics. And I want to talk a little bit about how to survive your family this holiday season. On the lowest level, this will be kind of a family survival guide talk. But we don't want to live at the lowest common denominator. On the highest level, I want to try and share a vision for how to experience the kingdom of God in the middle of difficult family dynamics. How can we represent Jesus well and honor him well, even when things are a little bit challenging in our family? And there's very good news for many of us here today. You do not need to have a perfect family to experience the kingdom of God inside your family. You don't need to have uh, everything perfectly arranged and everybody getting along uh, in order to honor God. You are not disqualified today if your family is struggling. In fact, for our text today, we're going to look at some of the interactions that Jesus had with his natural family members. And we're going to see that some of the dysfunction that we experience he experienced. And we're going to look at how Jesus dealt with that because remember, Jesus is always the pattern. When you committed to following him, and if you're here today and you're not sure if you want to be a Christian, maybe you're 
exploring Christianity, you're asking questions about different worldviews or ideologies, if you settle on Jesus, if you see the beauty of this message and you land on Jesus, then two things occur. We are supposed to do our absolute best to be like him. So if you're only passively involved in the Christian faith, you've got to step up. We're supposed to pursue being like Jesus. But on the other hand, there's, there's a function that has nothing to do with our effort. It's that the Holy Spirit, it's God, is growing us into the image of Jesus. God is working on us and challenging us and shaping us, but it always comes back to being like Jesus. So when we see Jesus interacting with maybe some passive aggression or some misunderstanding or some manipulation or some issues, it shows us how we navigate those things as well. So we're going to use the Jesus passages, but there's a lot of passages I could have used. The Bible is packed with family stories, and almost all of them are dysfunctional. The vast majority of family encounters in the Bible are negative. In fact, the ones that are positive are only mentioned very briefly, so they might not even have been quite as positive as we think. We just don't know that much about them. I mean, for instance, um, the Bible tells us about Priscilla and Aquila, and they're this married couple, and Paul adores them, Apollos respected them, the whole church was strengthened by them, and, and we have people like that here at Grace. There are married couples in this church that Jessica and I adore, and we respect you, and we look up to you, but we also realize that just because you're awesome, it doesn't mean you're immune to being human. It doesn't mean that you haven't experienced the challenges of trying to stay in love or, or work on your relationship. Um, the book of Acts tells us about a, a guy named Philip who was called Philip the Evangelist. And it's really intriguing because it says he had four daughters who were prophets. They, they were unmarried young women and they were prophetesses. And that's all we know about him. And it sounds like that's a pretty amazing family. Wouldn't you like to have dinner with Philip the Evangelist and the four prophet daughters? I mean, they probably just sat around talking about Jesus all the time. Probably no drama, no tension, no sister rivalry, and, and we know that that stuff's not real. We know that we're all human. Um, we're all challenged, and it's kind of shocking when you think about it. Am I bumming you out, or are you okay? That far more often than anything else, the Bible presents family as incredibly challenging. In the very first family dynamic in Scripture with Adam and Eve, we see dysfunction that most of us have probably not experienced. Their son Cain murdered their other son Abel. A little bit later down the family line, they have a descendant named Lamech. And Lamech decides, I don't want to be stuck with just one wife. I would like multiple wives. So Lamech introduces polygamy into the human story. And by the way, if you're even considering going there, if you're just curious about the idea, the Bible never says multiple wives is a good thing. It never goes well when we multiply wives. Oh, it never goes well. Um, how about in Genesis 6 when the whole world is starting to collapse? Humanity devolves from Lamech until finally God can hardly find anybody who's righteous. He finally finds Noah. And Noah and his family, ah, they're the one hope for humanity. And what happens? Noah plants a vineyard, makes wine, and promptly drinks the wine, gets drunk, strips naked, and passes out in his room. 
And then he has three sons, and one of the sons comes in and sees dad laying like that, and he goes and tells the other boys, oh my God, do you know what dad is doing? Do you know where dad's, like he's sprawled out, he's totally naked. The other sons are a little more respectful. So they, they take this cloak and they cover their dad and they don't look at him. When Noah wakes up and he discovers what his son had done, he curses him. He curses him and his descendants. Now, I can understand disciplining the son. I mean, I could understand being like, Amber, Maddie, I'm so disappointed. Why would you do whatever you're doing? But I curse you and I curse your descendants because of this. That's not very fatherly. Um, Abraham and Sarah, <clears throat> oh my goodness, they're kind of the, the picture of, of God's plan, right? Because when things were so lost, God decided to, to renew a covenant with Abraham and Sarah. And they're so dysfunctional that their story could have its own reality TV show. Sarah is gorgeous. She's a knockout. She's related to Jessica. And at one point, <laughs> is our family doing a little bit better now? Um, at, at one point, uh, this foreign king sees Sarah. He's smitten by her beauty, wants to pull her into his harem, and Abraham says, okay, she's my sister. You can, I mean, he did that. And I understand being scared, but wouldn't you like the person who loves you the most to defend you a little bit? So Sarah is unable to conceive, and so she finally says to Abraham, listen, this is getting so discouraging. Why don't you sleep with my assistant that way you can at least have a child and I can kind of be in the mix a little bit. And Abraham said, absolutely not. I will never violate my vows. No, that's not what he said, is it? He does it. He's like, oh, I, you want me to sleep with her? Okay. And he does it. But then when she has a baby <clears throat> and conceives, <clears throat> Sarah hates Hagar, the assistant. And then Ishmael, the son of Abraham and Hagar grows up. Finally, Sarah is able to conceive, and it's just so beautiful how God came through in her life and healed her. She was able to conceive. But then Isaac, Abraham and Sarah's son, is born, and then Ishmael, Abraham and Hagar's son, is mocking Isaac, and Sarah gets mad at Hagar. And Sarah says, uh, drive her away, and Abraham's like, I am not getting in the middle of this sister-wives thing. You do whatever you want to do to her. Ishmael and Isaac grow up and they have virtually zero relationship. In fact, they only come together to bury their father. Isaac and Rebekah end up having two sons that hate each other for many years. In fact, one of them, Esau, marries a woman that Rebekah cannot stand. Rebekah says to Isaac about her daughter-in-law, life is not worth living because of this woman. In fact, if my other son marries a woman like her, I don't even know if I can make it. And there must have been a reason for that. Jacob, their son, Isaac and Rebekah's son, gets swindled and schemed and, and tricked by his future father-in-law, Laban. Jacob works seven years for Laban to marry Rachel, Laban's younger daughter. But on Jacob's honeymoon night, Laban does this little switcheroo and he sends Leah, the older unmarried sister, into the bridal suite. And Jacob has been waiting so long to sleep with her that they don't do any talking. He gets right to it and doesn't know until the morning that it's Leah. And so Jacob is humiliated, Rachel is heartbroken, Leah is heartbroken, Laban's using all of them. Jacob ends up married to both of these sisters who constantly fight, constantly are in tension, constantly are jealous. Jacob ends up having 12 sons. It's a little overwhelming, isn't it? He ends up having 12 sons. 
but he shows favoritism to son number 11. So the first 10 sons hate son number 11. They hate son number 11 so badly, they send son number 11 away into slavery. There's conflict between the in-laws in Moses' family. Moses' wife is in conflict with Moses' sister Miriam and Moses' brother Aaron. Samuel is one of the greatest prophets who ever lived. The Bible says of Samuel, his words never fell to the ground, which means every time he said, thus saith the Lord, the Lord was saying thus. It really was God. So accurate, and yet Samuel had two sons that didn't follow God the way Samuel did. They were priests like Samuel was, but they didn't have Samuel's character. And where Samuel honored the priesthood and honored God, they were loose morally. And they went a different path, and they abused the priesthood, and they didn't have the same character. King David, should we even open up King David? I'll get us to Jesus here eventually. Uh, but King David had massive issues with his kids. In fact, there, there was hatred between some of the kids. There was abuse between some of the kids in David's family. There was, there was stuff that went unhealed in David's family. David himself had family issues as a kid. You know, David was the youngest of eight brothers. And wouldn't you think that the oldest would kind of have a soft spot for the youngest, even if they're a little bit annoying? So, the battle with Goliath occurs, and the older three brothers are fighting this battle, and David is tasked with bringing them lunch. And he shows up at the battlefield to bring them lunch, and instead of seeing baby brother David, and they're, they're, they're in war, and they're overwhelmed, instead of being like, David, oh my God, how are you, man? How's dad? You know what the older brother does? He calls him a brat. He says, I know the naughtiness of your heart, you naughty little boy. What are you doing here at the battlefield? They were never able to see anything in David but pesky little brother. How about when Samuel came to the house to anoint one of the brothers king? They don't even bring David in to observe. I understand why Jesse wouldn't think that David was a candidate to be the king. That makes sense. He's just the runt of the litter. He's the youngest. We've got these old, mature, you know, handsome, leadership-oriented guys. But still, your brother's going to be anointed king. Would you like to watch? I think that's going to make you a prince. So, at least it would affect you somehow. David had the worst father-in-law in human history. How are things going with your in-laws, by the way? So, King Saul gives his daughter to David in marriage. Here, you can have my daughter. Just know that in a few years, I'm going to kill you. Saul spent five years at one point, every single day, hunting David. My goodness. Hosea marries Gomer, but Gomer is a chronic adulterer. She's chronically unfaithful to him. Ezekiel has a pretty good marriage, it seems like. The Bible says that Ezekiel's wife was the delight of his eyes. But then she died suddenly. So we have one bright spot, but then she's gone. In Malachi, <clears throat> the last book of the Old Testament, <clears throat> some of the major themes are divorce. People are not fighting for their marriages. They're divorcing flippantly in the book of Malachi. And young sons and young daughters are not respecting and honoring their mothers and their fathers. So the Old Testament, and is your family, by the way, starting to sound a little bit better? Is your dysfunction kind of shifting into a slightly more manageable place? So in Scripture, the, the stories are filled with dysfunctional marriages, parents who don't parent well, kids who rebel and run away, siblings who are estranged and lose contact, and when we get to the New Testament, it's exactly the same. 
Even Jesus experienced some of this. And yet, God still thinks that family is worth it. He never jettisons family. In fact, rather than saying, this is a lost cause, and to just broaden our thinking for a second, today there are people saying the church is a lost cause. Old-fashioned values are a lost cause. Fidelity in marriage is a lost cause. People are saying that in our world today, and even when something looks like it might be a lost cause, if it is a something that God initiated, it is never lost. And God never gives up on it. In fact, rather than giving up on family, God elevates family. He uses bridal imagery to talk about Jesus' relationship with the church. He calls himself father. He calls the church the family of God or the household of faith. He calls us sisters and brothers. And so how do we redeem it? How do we move out of the dysfunction and move a little bit deeper into God's purpose. We will never have the perfect family because every family is made up of free-willed humans who have to choose to respond to the grace of God in their lives. The perfect parents, and I don't know very many of those, but the perfect parents still have free-willed children who have to respond to a unique faith journey. The perfect spouse And I don't know a whole lot of those, but the perfect spouse is still married to a sinner. And what do we always say here at Grace? Sinners sin, and sin brings death every time. Uh, The perfect aunt or uncle or cousin or brother or sister or grandparent is still a broken human in need of rescue, in need of redemption. And and we're still vulnerable to the same dynamics. And so let's look at Jesus, and let's look at some of his interactions with family. Um, let's go in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. We'll start there. I can't tell if you're totally with me or if I have just sunk you all into the, the foundations of Luhai Gymnasium here today. I think you're with me. Mark 6 verse 1 says, Jesus left there and went to his hometown. We could just pause there and just sit in that sentence for a second. He, left, he went on from there, and he went to his hometown. Hometowns bring up a lot of emotion, don't they? See, Emily's here from college today. My students from APU uh, were expressing so much excitement about going home, but they were also expressing some trepidation. Going back to your hometown is so exciting, but there's also a little nervousness that can accompany it. And, and in this passage especially, it's an interesting time in Jesus. It says he left there. The there that he left was a powerful ministry experience. The event that happened right before what we're about to read was that famous event where Jesus is healing, he's teaching, he's doing miracles. Crowds are following him. And at one point, a man named Jairus comes up to Jesus. Do you remember the story? And he falls at Jesus' feet, and, and he's a rich man. But despite being rich and probably decked out like a rich dude, he falls at Jesus' feet and he said, God, my my daughter, she's 12 years old and she's dying. Would you please come and minister to her? And Jesus says, yes. So he's walking with Jairus to heal the 12-year-old little girl. And as he's walking, he stops and he says, wait a minute, who who touched me? And he's in such a a, a massive throng of people that the disciples are like, Lord, what's going on? crazy. Everybody's touching you. And he's like, no, no, this touch was different. Somebody just pulled power out of me. 
So they do a little investigating and finally this woman fesses up and she's like, it was me. And I've had this very private, very vulnerable, personal issue for 12 years. And so Jairus is standing there saying, wait a minute, 12? My daughter's 12. And now he just heals a woman who's been sick for 12. Maybe that healing is a sign. Well, it was a sign. Jesus goes into Jairus' home and unfortunately she had already died, but she didn't stay dead very long because he raised her back to life. It's one of the handful of resurrection stories. And it's amazing. And then Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were amazed. And they said, what's this wisdom that's been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles that he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Other, other passages say, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Mary's son? Isn't this the brother of James and Joseph and Jude and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. And he could not do many miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Have you ever noticed that sometimes family freezes us in the past? Have you ever noticed when you go back to your hometown that sometimes you have matured and moved on and you've grown and yet everybody has you stuck in the space or the age that you were when you lived in the hometown. Have you experienced that? In... <laughs> um, does your mom listen to these messages too? Um, in Christianity, we mature. We grow. If you're really following Jesus, you're better today than you were a year ago. You're still you still have issues, but your issues are lessening. Your, your, your holiness, your strength is increasing. I am better today in every possible way. I'm funnier, I'm more confident, I'm more humble, I'm nicer, I'm more engaging today than I was in college. But sometimes when I go home, it's almost like there's a familiar spirit is a way to say it. There's like a groove that it's easy just to kind of slide back into. And I'm not that person anymore, and yet I get home and my personality reverts. I, I, I slip back into, no, I, I, I'm still the carpenter's son. Everything in Jesus' life was pointing to the day when he would be revealed as Messiah, rescuer. And when he finally steps into that role, the, the nation is erupting. The only people who are struggling are the religious leaders who feel threatened. Everybody is freaking out. This is our Messiah, except in his hometown, where it's so tough to let somebody change. It's so tough to let our loved ones grow, to let them become something different. But part of why that's the case is because in family, we don't usually celebrate when somebody grows beyond us. See, I'm not holier than thou. I'm not better than my family. But there were some dynamics in my family that when I was a kid, I didn't know any different. That's just who we were. That's the way we communicated or didn't communicate. That's what we valued or didn't value. And so when I change and I grow and I realize, wow, there are different ways of resolving conflict. There are healthier ways of relating. My family doesn't celebrate that. They feel judged by that. 
I'm saying my family kind of metaphorically. I mean, it's all of us. Did you experience that dynamic? So you go home and you either want to slip back into that old you. And so everybody in your life thinks you're charming and loving and kind and outgoing and compassionate. But, but at home, sometimes you're still viewed as the selfish little sister or the, the somewhat immature, flaky one. And, and we need to change. Um, our families can get offended They don't always celebrate the change. They don't celebrate the growth. They can get offended by it. And and it can be challenging. I I can't say this um, with certainty, but it's possible that Mary might have been a little bit demanding. She might have been a little bit passive-aggressive. Do you remember the the famous wedding in uh, Cana? Jesus turns water into wine. It's kind of an interesting passage because Jesus was not hosting the wedding. Mary was not hosting the wedding. They were guests. The text makes it very clear. They were invited to the wedding. So they're wedding guests, and and everybody drinks up the wine, and Mary says, hey, Jesus, they're out of wine. And he could have gotten a little bit snarky, and he could have been like, "Uh, I'm not hosting this. Or, Mom, are you trying to tell me something? Or or are you trying to communicate something? But, you know, she's like, hey, they're out of wine. And, and, And there was this expectation that Jesus would do something about it. You know, she doesn't say, oh, son, I'm so sorry, but would you mind helping out? She doesn't say, son, um, our friends are looking bad. They feel terrible. Can we bail them out? Would you mind helping a little bit? Um, Families can be demanding. And since family is so important, sometimes family thinks that family is the only thing that's important. In fact, there was one time uh, when Jesus was ministering, and he's in the middle of teaching, and in the middle of his teaching, his mom and brothers show up and start demanding to talk to him. I'll just read it to you. It's over in Matthew. Um, Matthew chapter 12, verse 48 says, While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mom and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. So I'm in the middle of talking. They, they want me to go leave right now. And, and sometimes it's hard for when we grow and mature and move on, it is hard for families to let go sometimes and, and move into that new reality with us. And then Jesus says, listen, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And then he points to his disciples and he says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Sometimes we can feel guilty because we might feel more like family with our small group than our natural family. And this isn't leading up, by the way, I'll just give you the punchline now in case you're getting nervous. This isn't a slam on families. God hasn't jettisoned family. God wants us to redeem family. But there's truth in what Jesus said. I've grieved at times. I can sit at coffee with a brother in the church and feel more of a brotherhood than sometimes with natural family. And Jesus experienced that. This is, these are my, I'm not rejecting you, but these are my brothers and sisters and my mother. And sometimes that creates painful dynamics. Um, sometimes family misunderstands us, don't they? Sometimes they, they misinterpret us, which is kind of funny because family knows us the best. And you would think that the people who know you the best would understand you the most, but that's not always the case. Sometimes we're still viewed as the carpenter's son or James's brother, or this person's sister. In fact, C.S. Lewis said that marriage, it's sometimes, it's more like looking into a mirror 
rather than walking arm in arm into the same experience. When you're looking into a mirror, you're seeing so clearly, but remember, you're seeing an inverted image. And I move my left hand, but your right hand moves. And he said, sometimes marriage is like that. You're so close that you almost really can't see accurately because you're too close. And sometimes that happens in family. We're so close, but we just don't get it. We're so close, but we, but we miss something. In fact, this happened in John chapter 7. Why don't you scoot over there? In John 7 verse 1, it says, After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go into Judea because the Jewish leaders were trying to kill him, so he had a good reason for not wanting to go. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works that you do. And then look at verse 4. This is Jesus' brothers, not the disciples. These are his, his natural-born siblings. No one who wants to become famous, no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the whole world. Verse 5, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. See, Jesus didn't want to be famous, but they completely missed his intention. And there are reasons for that. I mean, could you imagine being a brother and finding out that your sibling is God? Got to have a little grace on the sibs with this one. I mean, your brother is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Okay, that's, that's tough. And, and then there's also jealousy. Sometimes siblings can be the best of friends, but they can also be the best of rivals. And it can be difficult for a sibling when another sibling seems to be more successful. And so Jesus is famous and we're not. And the crowds are following him, and I don't quite understand him because I've got him limited in this familiar spirit, and I've got my own issues that are reading into it. And so, if you want to be this famous figure so bad, go show yourself to the people. Um, I, I don't think I'm reading too much between the lines. I think with just some mild reading between the lines, we can see that Jesus was no less human than you and me. The family dynamics were no different from ours. And so what did he do? A couple things. Number one, he never pulled back from his greater identity as the son of God. So as you project a little bit into December and into Christmas and into your future, he never pulled back. Yes, I'm Mary's son. Yes, I'm the carpenter's son. Yes, these are my brothers and these are my sisters and they really are my family, but I have another identity too. And I have another father. And so when people get offended in Capernaum, what does he do? He doesn't pack up and leave. He heals some sick people. Yeah, maybe it wasn't as glorious as in other places, but guys, this is who I am. And he never wants, we never see Jesus changing his new identity or his true identity in order to conform to the familiar spirit in his family ever. He never does that. But number two, and this is super important, we never see Jesus disrespect his family. There is not one record of him ever being unkind or disrespectful. In fact, he does the opposite. He honors them. Mary's like, Jesus, they're out of wine. What does he do? He makes wine. In fact, he doesn't just make wine. He makes incredible wine. Who do you think got part of the credit for that? Mary. The text tells us that the host got all this credit, but Mary was the one that was like, I asked him to do it. <laughs> he made his mom look good even in the middle of an interaction that maybe wasn't the most perfect point of communication, while he's dying on the cross and he only has enough breath and enough strength to make seven statements, he chooses to use one of them to talk to his mom. He's like, hey, mom, John's your son. He'll take care of you. John, 
take care of mom. He never disrespected them. However, even though he didn't disrespect them, number three, he also didn't let things go. If we don't respect, we can't confront. And see, in family, the familiarity breeds disrespect. Because we're so familiar, I don't have to be quite as polite with you, but isn't that backwards? Shouldn't I be more loving to the people that I love the most? Shouldn't I be more caring and more kind and more respectful? Yes, I need to be able to drop my guard. I have to have a place where I can be human and just be real. But on the other hand, should I be nicer to a total stranger or the woman that I've pledged my entire life to? Should I be kinder to the people who know me the best and are closest in my life or people I'm never going to see again? Um, And so we have to be respectful. And when we're respectful, then we can call things out. So the the disciples say, or excuse me, (laughs) the brothers say, if you want to be famous so badly, go on up to the feast. And here's how Jesus responds in verse six. Hey, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world can't hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to the festival because my time has not yet fully come. He doesn't slip back into the past. He doesn't cave. He doesn't get disrespectful. He doesn't rebuke them, but he calls them out. He says, hold on, there's more going on here. And I insist that we operate in truth. Um, And then number four, he never lost hope for them. Oh, you guys, Jesus came to save the world. And the world included his family. Sometimes we want to minister to our family more than anyone else. But have you ever discovered that ministering to family can be very difficult? Have you found that sometimes it's easier to be a really good Christian at work than it is at home or with the in-laws or at the Christmas celebration? Sometimes family can be one of the toughest places to minister to. Uh, But listen listen to this verse. I love this verse. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, the Apostle Paul's writing, and he says, Now, brothers and sisters, so family language. I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then he appeared to the 12. After that, he appeared to me. Uh, Excuse me, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. It's a euphemism for dying, which means Paul saying, hey, listen, there's hundreds of people who who can tell you if I'm telling you the truth or not. He appeared to 500 people, and a lot of them are still, still living. Then he appeared to James, brother then to all of the apostles and last of all he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born i love this the reason that james was late on the list was because he was jesus brother and we read in john 7 that the brothers didn't believe in him but eventually they did this james who was a late adopter james didn't become a christian until after jesus death until after his resurrection He was a late adopter. He never got on board during the lifetime of Jesus' ministry. And yet this was the James that wrote the book of James in your Bible. The guy who wrote James was not James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. It's a different James. It was Jesus' brother who wrote that. Jesus' brother, James, was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. 
that we read about in Acts chapter 15. In fact, James's brother had a nickname. Anybody remember from church history what his nickname was? He had a nickname of Camel Knees. Camel Knees. How would you like to break out the shorts for the first time and cross your legs and, ooh, Camel Knees. And then it sticks. Maddie um, just got a pair of glasses, so she wears braces and glasses now. So I'm having so much fun calling her rude. But she's got two nicknames that you just have to latch onto. It's, it's just... Why, did he, why was he called Camel Knees? History tells us that he spent so much time on his knees praying to his brother that his knees became gnarly and callous. He was martyred for his faith in his brother. They threw James from one of the upper balconies in the temple. He smashes on the ground, but he lives. And so somebody had to go over and bludgeon him to death because of his faith in his brother. Um, They had another brother named Jude who wrote a book of the Bible called Jude. And the book of Jude starts out with these words, Jude, the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and the brother of James. And I love that introduction. Because if I was writing a book and my brother was super famous, I might say, Jude, the brother of that guy. But he doesn't do that. He says, no, no, I'm the servant of Jesus Christ. And I'm the brother of James. James was so famous in the church, all he had to say was James, and everybody knew who he was talking to. So, If you found it difficult being a really great Christian in your family, please remember, um, it works. In fact, let's just do a really quick experiment. Uh, How many of you became a Christian because somebody knocked on your door and convinced you that the way you were living was wrong? How many of you, that was your experience? And that might be somebody's experience here. People do go door to door. People do still answer their doors when people knock. Okay, how about... How about a a crusade? My dad gave his heart to Jesus at a Billy Graham crusade. Anybody here respond to Jesus at a crusade like that? Go ahead and lift up your hands if that's you. I'm sure there are some. How many of you responded to Jesus because of a family member or a close friend? Somebody that was in your inner circle. See, the, the evidence is overwhelming that even if it's tricky, God doesn't give up on family because he is convinced that family is the best vehicle for drawing people to himself. It's the best vehicle for working out this thing that we call salvation. In fact, when he called the 12, most of the 12 disciples, he had a ton of disciples, by the way, and out of the ton of disciples, he selected 12 to be his apostles. The 12, almost all of them were connected as either family or friends. So when he decided to launch the church, he uses relatives. He uses best friends. So what would happen if we approached our families the way Jesus did? What would happen if we never stepped out of our truer nature? I am not going back to that. That's not who I am anymore. However, I'm not looking down on you. And I'm not better than you. I am part of our family dysfunction. And, and yet I'm moving into this different calling and this different life. What if, we, what if we treated our families with so much respect that they felt heard and loved, and accepted. See, there were some issues in being Joseph's son. When he says, that's the carpenter's son, there were some issues that came with that. There was some scandal in the air. It wasn't true, but it was in the air. There were some issues in being Mary's boy. But there was also some some nobility in that. 
Joseph wasn't just a carpenter. Joseph was a man who believed God enough to ruin his reputation over it. Mary wasn't just an unwed, pregnant woman. Mary was a woman who was willing to believe God with something unheard of. So even if there's some dysfunction in the carpenter's offspring of your life, there's also some nobility. And I realize maybe the dysfunction and the pain is so great that you've got to reach back a couple generations. But somewhere in your backdrop, somewhere in your line, there's something good to cling to. And when you become who you really are, you're actually going to become more of who you already are. So we never back off of who we really are. We never treat our families with disrespect. But because we treat them respectfully, we call things out. We say, hey, there's more for us. Let's not spend the next 20 years managing get-togethers. Let's insist. And again, that will happen to varying degrees from you. Maybe you'll be a two today and you'll move to a four and that's the best you'll ever get. But hey, four is better than two. Or maybe the four will go all the way to 10. See, there, there, there's stuff in our families that we need to get rid of, but there's also stuff we need to embrace. So this holiday season, be you. Be the, the you that God is making you to be. And while you're doing it, Lean on your spiritual family. We are not more important than your natural family. If churches ever separate people from families, that's a sign toward cult dumb. That's what cults do. We're not in the business of separating from families. We're in the business of having a spiritual family that makes us better at reaching our actual families. So be you, be the real you. Love your loved ones. Insist on a higher way of living. And I think we can experience more of the kingdom of God, even in the middle of times that are a little bit delicate or painful.